open God's Word together. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. In John chapter 2, we will be continuing our study through the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, and we're going to be in verses 23 through 25. John chapter 2, 23 through 25. So when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our most gracious Heavenly Father. How grateful we are for the privilege, for the opportunity we have to come before you, to worship, to pray, to read your word, and just glorify you in all that we do and say. As we look to this passage today, help it to convict our hearts. Help it, help it to draw us ever closer to you. We love you, Lord. We thank you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Our passage today raises perhaps life's most important question. What is genuine belief? Across the world, there are hundreds of groups that claim the title of Christian and claim to believe in the name of Jesus. Just up the road here from us, we have a, a Jehovah's Witnesses Kingdom Hall, and they claim to believe in Jesus but they deny the Trinity. The Mormons claim to believe in Jesus, but they believe in a different Jesus and have a different gospel. The Word of Faith movement, led by the likes of Benny Hinn and Joel Osteen, Kenneth Copeland, Bill Johnson, the likes that you see on TV, all claim the title of Christian and say they believe in the name of Jesus. Yet many of them preach a different gospel, a different Christ, and should be classified as Gnostic heretics and not Christians. Our passage today is, is hard. As I read through it, I really struggled um, preparing this sermon because it's a difficult passage. It can be hard to interpret, and it speaks some very serious truths that are sometimes hard to hear. We see the Jews observe the signs that Jesus performed, and we read that many believed in his name. But then we see that Jesus does not entrust himself to them. My question to you is why? Why does Jesus not entrust himself to them? Are they not genuine believers? What is the ground for genuine belief? In your bulletins this morning, you will see the main idea that John is trying to convey in the text. And the main idea is this. Jesus did not believe in man's belief, demonstrating man's depravity and Christ's divinity. And let me repeat that for emphasis. Jesus did not believe in man's belief, demonstrating man's depravity and Christ's divinity. And we're going to explore this idea as we go through the text. In John 2, 23 through 25, we see the contrast between the external belief of man 
and the knowledge of Christ, which should help you examine your life and your belief to see if it is genuine. Our first point is man's depravity. Man's depravity. We see that in verse 23. It's a theme that we find throughout the gospel of John. Man's depravity is the same thing as the doctrine of total depravity or absolute inability. It's the idea that all men who are born of ordinary generation, born of the seed of Adam, have Adam's sin imputed to them. Adam is our federal head. And because of his sin, his sin in the garden is then passed on to all his descendants born of the seed of man. And that includes every human being who has ever lived, save one, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, not born of the seed of man. And that's why the virgin birth is so important and why we celebrate the virgin birth during this Christmas season. Total depravity does not mean that sinners act as bad as possible. I mean, can you imagine if everyone in the world acted as bad as possible? I think the world would go extinct in about five minutes if that was the case. It also doesn't mean that men can't do relative acts of goodness. Uh, We know that non-believers can do relative acts of goodness, of kindness towards others, feed the poor, take care of their families. And let me emphasize the relative acts because no act outside of Christ done for the glory of God is good in and of itself. The motivation must be for God's glory. It is God that makes things good. Only God is good. Nevertheless, man's depravity is total. It is all pervasive. It touches every aspect of our nature. Titus 1.15 says, To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Every aspect of man's nature has been corrupted by our sin nature. And there are three truths about total depravity that I'd like you to grasp as we enter into this passage. The first is that total depravity means our our mind and our conscience. Everything is defiled. It's all pervasive. That's the first truth. Second, it's universal to all who are born of ordinary generation. And third, it means that we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to please God. And to demonstrate this fact, which will help you understand John, I'd like you to turn with me briefly to Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8, to establish this. Keep your finger in John chapter 2. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verses 6 through 8. Of course, Romans is Paul's magnum opus. It is perhaps his most uh, doctrine-heavy letter. Uh, It lays out the most complete aspects of Paul's theology in one book. And the first 11 chapters deal with theology and then Chapters 12 and onward deal with the practical application of what Paul is teaching to our lives. So here in Romans chapter 8, he's speaking of, uh, he's teaching us theology. He's speaking of deliverance from our sin, and he's speaking of total depravity. Let's look at verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Note that it doesn't say that man who is in the flesh can please God some of the time. It doesn't say that he can subject himself to God in any case 
Or in very few cases, no, it says he is not able to subject himself to God. The natural man, the man in his depravity, cannot subject himself to God. He cannot please God. The unregenerate mind can only, cannot please God, but he also is hostile to God. This is total depravity. And there are two examples of total depravity on display in John 2, 23. So now that we've established total depravity, the idea in Scripture, let's go back to John 2, verse 23. We're going to see two different examples in this verse. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Our first example of man's depravity in this verse is seeking signs. Seeking signs. As Pastor Chris preached to us last week, signs are a miraculous demonstration that point us to the divinity of Christ. There are eight signs in, uh, that are recorded in the Gospel of John if you include the cross. Um, so there are eight signs uh, in the Gospel of John. Last week, we looked at the Jews questioning the authority of Jesus, and he points them to, he, they ask for a sign, and he points them to his coming crucifixion and his death and resurrection. Now, signs is a key word in our text. It's mentioned three times in chapter 2. And I'd like to be clear that signs in and of themselves are pure and holy. They point people to Christ's identity and to his divinity. If you just go back in the chapter to chapter uh, 2, verse 11, we see that Jesus turns water into wine. This is a sign. This is the first public sign that he does. And we read this in verse 11 of John chapter 2. This is the beginnings of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So where we see Jesus performing a sign that results in the belief of his disciples, and it displays his glory. It is a good thing. The purpose statement of John's gospel, if you remember, it's found in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and I won't have you turn there, but I'll read it for you. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, signs point us to the glory of Christ. And that which points us to his divinity. And because of these signs, true disciples believe in him. And as John 20 tells us in in the purpose statement, the signs that John records in his gospel are not the only signs that Jesus performed. John includes them so that you, the reader might believe in the divinity and authority of Christ. And by so believing, you can have eternal life through the death and resurrection of Christ. Earlier, we sang the song, God Almighty, we are waiting. And as we sang that song, if you remember one of the lyrics from the song, it said, as we look for signs and wonders, help us see you in a child. So in other words, As we look for signs, we are not to look for the purpose of seeing signs. No, the signs point us to something. When you're driving down the highway and you're hungry and you want to go to Chick-fil-A, and it's not on Sunday, and you see a sign on the road, you're not looking for the sign pointing you to Chick-fil-A. If you went to the sign, you would still be hungry and that wouldn't help you at all. No, the sign is merely pointing you to the end goal. 
And this is how we as Christians should view signs. They're not the end goal. They're a sign. Literally, they are pointing us to something. The signs are a means to the end. Now, earlier in chapter 2, in verse 18, as we mentioned earlier, the Jews asked Jesus for a sign to show by what authority he cleansed the temple. Pastor Chris preached on this last week. And as we saw, this is really a distraction from the real issue. The real issue was the Jews' lack of reverence. If you remember, there were money changers in the temple, and there were animals in the temple, and this was, this was an affront, an offense to God. And the Jews sought to signs either to deflect or distract from Christ's authority. That's their purpose in asking Jesus, by what authority do you do these things? We want to see a sign. And what was Jesus's response? Well, he points them to the destruction and resurrection of the temple of his body. But the Jews don't understand these things. Even the disciples, we're not sure if they understood them then, or most likely they understood them after Jesus was died, after he died and was buried and rose from the dead. That's when the disciples understood these things. But the unbelieving Jews certainly did not understand what Jesus was talking about. They thought he was talking about the physical temple, which had taken years to build. And they questioned, well, how can you rebuild this temple in, in three days? And the Jews, the, the unbelieving Jews here do not understand because they have unregenerate minds that cannot understand. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Instead of seeing signs that point to the deity of Christ, the natural man, the unregenerate man, the sinful man pursues signs as the end goal. Just think of the crowd on Palm Sunday. They see Jesus riding through the streets on the donkey in fulfillment of prophecy in the Old Testament. And they cheer and praise him. And many say, yes, we believe this is, this is our Messiah. And less than a week later, what are they doing? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They look to the sign and not to the Savior. Pursuing signs is dangerous if you're pursuing them as the end goal. Not only because they distract if you're just pursuing them for the end goal, but also because there are false signs and wonders that do not point to God. Jesus warns of false signs during the coming end times, during the tribulation. He says that false prophets and antichrists will perform lying signs and wonders that are so deceptive that without the work of the Holy Spirit, they would deceive even the elect, even God's people. Matthew 24, 24, Jesus says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. True signs can be imitated by false signs, deceiving those interested only in the wonder of signs. Think of Exodus, when Moses comes before Pharaoh and he has his staff. And he casts it down before Pharaoh and the staff turns into a serpent. What do Pharaoh's magicians do? They come with their own staffs, cast them down. And then Moses is, uh, and they turn into snakes. And then Moses' snake or his staff eats their snakes, consumes them. They perform false signs and wonders that wow and cause people to look at them instead of to the message that Moses is trying to deliver. That God is telling Pharaoh, repent or judgment is coming. Now, true signs are given for a specific purpose in history. 
True signs given by God are to authenticate new revelation. And what do I mean? Well, true signs in Scripture, if you look at signs and wonders in Scripture, they authenticate the men of God who are proclaiming God's word. They receive a revelation from God, which they then write down. It's what we call the Bible. And because of that, to authenticate their ministry, God gives them signs and wonders that he allows them to perform. If you think of the apostles or any of the prophets, they, these signs that they do authenticate that they are God's man, that they are messengers of the Lord. Now, is that still going on today? Well, no, the canon of scripture is closed. We're not adding to scripture. And because of that, these sign gifts, these apostolic gifts have ceased. But in John 2.23 we have not yet have the we do not yet have the, the New Testament and the Jews are observing the signs that Jesus did as an authentication of his divinity, of his authority from God, and we're told that they believed. So the signs point to the authority of Christ and they believe. But let me ask you, was their faith, was their belief genuine? Today there is a unhealthy and dangerous obsession within some circles of Christianity uh, concerning signs. I'm going to give a little history lesson here. And this is due to the charismatic movement that has been around for about the last 120 years or so. It's especially prevalent here in California because here is where the movement was popularized. You might be uh, aware of the Azusa Street Revival of 1906. It was an aberrant movement started by a man named William Seymour, who was taught by a man named Charles Parham, and they started what we now know today as the charismatic or Pentecostal churches. And they believed in signs and wonders. And you might have heard this story before, is they believed that they were supernaturally empowered with the gift of tongues. And because of that, they decided that they were going to send missionaries without learning the language to China to preach the gospel. And you think, oh, that sounds cool. The only problem was when the missionaries got there, they found out they didn't have the gift of tongues and they couldn't communicate. And so they came back and were ashamed and uh, realized they had to learn the language. And so what Seymour and Parham do is they're like, well, actually, that's not the gift of tongues. The gift of tongues is, is some sort of gibberish that is a heavenly language. And that's where we get our modern day movement of tongues, which is not a scriptural movement. That's the history. Progressing further into Californian history, 1968, we have a little-known pastor named Chuck Smith. Some of you might have heard him. He teams up with a hippie named Lonnie Frisbee. Lonnie Frisbee, while taking LSD, has a vision of himself leading a Christian revival. He becomes an associate of Chuck Smith, spawning the Calvary Chapel movement and later the Vineyard movements. Now, Frisbee stresses signs and wonders and starts what is known as the Jesus movement that was very popular in the late 60s, early 70s, especially here in California. However, Frisbee, like all who pursue signs instead of sanctification, wonders instead of doctrine, and spiritual gifts instead of spiritual truths, did not display the mark of true belief. What do I mean? Well, Frisbee would preach, come up and preach on Sunday morning after a Saturday night of homosexual liaisons. He ended up divorcing his wife and dying of AIDS in 1993. Now, I don't know Frisbee's heart, but I do know that his external actions are not the mark of genuine belief. Now, today, there are still people influenced by this aberrant theology. 
The legacy of this movement is that of corrupt doctrine, shallow sign-seeking, and numerous shallow churches. And perhaps the best example of this today, and this is where it's relevant to you in your life and in your worship, is a group called the New Apostolic Reformation, the NAR or NAR. And the flagship group for that is Bethel Church, whose music is very popular on Christian radio today. They claim to exercise these modern-day gifts of signs, healings, and prophecy, speaking in tongues. And, of course, uh, these signs are, are not scriptural. For example, they claim that feathers and gold clouds appear during their services, and it turns out the gold clouds are just gold glitter that they push through the ventilation system. These are fake signs that are being pushed today, and many Christians seeing these things do not recognize that, no, they are not biblical. And folks, this is not new. Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the 19th century, correctly identifies the reason for such bizarre behavior. Quote, Spurgeon says, quote, certain people, people are always on the lookout for wonders, and if they don't see them, they invent them, unquote. Now, sadly, despite the warnings of such godly men as Spurgeon and others, we have many of these things infiltrating evangelical churches. So let me be clear about Bethel and Nar as a whole. They proclaim a false gospel, a false Christ, and should be viewed as a Gnostic pagan cult and not a Christian church. Like the Jews, in John 2.23, they seek signs and not the Savior. Such sign-seeking is not the mark of genuine belief, but that of a sinful heart. Our application today for believers on this point is that if you are a believer, seek Christ. Seek the gospel. Don't seek signs. Mark and avoid such who do. If you're a believing parent, do not expose your children to false teachers simply because their music is appealing. As we're about to see in verse 24, Jesus did not entrust himself to such people, and neither must we. Finally, if you're an unbeliever, I again encourage you to seek the Savior, the one who can save, not the signs that point to the Savior. Seek salvation, not the signs that point to salvation. Signs do not save you from your sin. They merely point you to the one who does save you, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So that's our first example of depravity, man's depravity in this verse. Second is false belief. It's found in the nature of the Jews' belief. Now the word believe is our second key word for our text, John 2.23. At the end of the verse, it says, Many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. Moving on to verse 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. So again, I'll ask you the question, if these people truly believed, why did Jesus not entrust himself to them? Jesus entrusts himself to his disciples. In John 2.11, the disciples saw the sign of the water being turned into wine and they believed in him. The word believed in verse 11 and in verse 23 is the same word in the same tense, the same person, the same number in the original Greek. It's the exact same word. So what's the difference between the belief in verse 11 and the belief in verse 23? Look back at me, with me at verse 11, John 2, 11. We see this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed on him. We see first that Jesus manifested or displayed, revealed his glory. 
Second, that the disciples are his disciples. Notice that it's possessive. They are his. There is a uniqueness to them. He has called them. They are his people, his disciples. That is why their belief is genuine. They have answered the call of Christ. Their belief, although immature, is genuine. But the belief of the Jews in verse 23 is not genuine. Jesus does not entrust himself to them. External belief from signs, not internal belief from a regenerated heart, is the mark of these people in verse 23. Now go back just uh, to chapter 1, verse 5 of John. Chapter 1, verse 5, we're going to see another example of this. If you remember, this is from Pastor Chris's second sermon, which is almost three months ago now, which is crazy and wonderful to think about. John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that the light which is Christ, shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not comprehend it. Do you notice a similarity between John 1, 5 and Romans 8, 6 through 8? A mind set on the flesh cannot comprehend the light. It is in darkness. It might see the light, but it doesn't comprehend it. Sydney and I had a, an experience last night that demonstrate this point from a worldly perspective. We were driving home from a Christmas party last night, driving up the road, and uh, two teenagers in a car uh, saw the light of our headlights. They didn't comprehend the headlights, and they turned into us and uh, hit us. Thankfully, there was only minor damage to the car, no serious damage to any of the parties involved, uh, and uh, other than some minor scraps uh, and damage to the car, there was no long-term damage. But this is a great point about our spiritual state. Men who are in darkness might see the light, but they can't comprehend the light. And the after effects of that are not some minor scraps on a car. The after effects and the result of not comprehending the light of Christ is eternal darkness, rejection from the Lord. Two facts about this. First, A darkened mind cannot be enlightened on its own. It can't. Second, true belief is not born by the will of man. It's born by the will of God. Move forward a few verses in John chapter 1. Let's look at verses 12 and 13. John 1, 12 and 13. It says, but as many as received him, speaking of Christ, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, but by, nor of the will of man, but of God. They're born by God's will, not by man's will. Those who believe are born of God. They have been regenerated. Their heart has been made new. You see, regeneration precedes faith. This is the heart of the Protestant Reformation that spawned the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther said this is the key point of the Reformation when he's debating Erasmus. And it's the idea of monergism in that we are saved solely due to the work of God and not due to any work in ourselves. We are not saved by our works or anything that we do, only due to the grace and goodness of God. Jonathan Edwards, the very famous theologian of the 18th century, said this, The only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. How true is that? In John 2.23, we have many that believe, but they are not believing according to the will of God. Their belief 
is a false belief born of their own desires. And this is demonstrated by the fact that Jesus does not entrust himself to them. And this is a theme throughout the book of of, of John. Genuine ongoing belief is contrasted with false temporal earthly fleshly belief. An example of this, I'd like you to turn to John chapter 8, verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. And at the pace we're going through John, it'll be, you know, 10 years before we get there. I'm teasing. Only eight years. Uh, John 8, and we're going to look at verse 31 through 34. Jesus in this passage is speaking in the temple, and he's telling the Jews that they have to believe in him or they're going to die in their sins. In verse 25, the Jews have asked for Jesus' identity, but they don't understand his response. And then we get to verse 31. John chapter 8, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, key verse there, key word, they believed him. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And they answered him, we are sons of Abraham's descendants, and have never yet been enslaved by anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? And Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. So we see in verse 31, the text says that the Jews believed. Notice the conditional element, though. We have an if-then statement. If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples. You see, true belief is not a one-time act. You believe in Christ, and then you go on and live your life however you want. No, true belief is ongoing. It continues in your life. Now, their belief here is not salvific. These Jews do not truly believe in the Lord. How do we know this? Well, let's look at the context of the passage. Go down to verse 41. Jesus is talking to the same group of people. Look what they say. Verse 41. You are doing the deeds of your father. That's what Jesus says to them. And then they say in reply, they said to him, we are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They're calling Jesus illegitimate. They're saying, no, you are born out of fornication. Is this the mark of someone who genuinely believes? Look down to verse 48. The Jews answered and said to him, do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Well, now these people who just a few verses earlier said they believe are claiming that Jesus is possessed by a demon. And these are people that say they believe. Go down to verse 58. Jesus answers them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He's making a definitive claim to deity. He is claiming to be divine in this verse. He is claiming to be God. And how do these believing Jews respond? Let's look at verse 59. Do they rejoice and celebrate? No. Therefore, they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple. This is the result of a darkened heart, not genuine belief. These are the same people who earlier claimed to believe in God and believe in Jesus. But this is the response of a dark and unregenerate heart. Their actions demonstrate that they do not have true belief. Jesus hides himself from them. He does not entrust himself to the crowd, just as he does not entrust himself to the crowd in John chapter 2. Their belief is not genuine. Even though if asked, if we looked in verse 31, they would have said, well, we believe in him. So our application today, for those in the room who claim to be believers, but your actions 
do not match your profession of faith. My question is this, do you believe truly, genuinely? In America today, there is a plight of easy believism within the church. It was a hard thing preparing this message because of this fact. There are millions of people who have been deceived into thinking that if they pray a prayer, if they get their fire insurance, if they make some sort of emotional response at youth camp, that they stand right before the Lord. Because they profess Christ as a child, and they point back to that experience. If they say they believe, that they, they think that they are truly saved. And then these same people who do this, then they go out and they live like devils. If you party on Saturday night like Lonnie Frisbee and then come to church on Sunday morning and think that you possess genuine belief, I'm talking to you today. I don't know your heart. Only God knows your heart. But I'm encouraging you to examine yourself, and we're going to look at that in just a second. Conversely, if you live a good moral life, but you're not interested in the things of God, you're like, well, I'm a good person. I, I stand right before the Lord because obviously my good works outweigh my bad. I'm talking to you today as well. James chapter 2, verse 19 says, you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. See, even demons believe in the Lord, not with a genuine, true belief. You must examine yourself to see if your belief is true and genuine. True belief is only due to the grace of God. It does not depend on your good works. It is demonstrated by your good works. Please turn with me, 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. You see, the idea of examining yourself is not something new. It's something that we are commanded to do in Scripture. The Apostle Paul tells the Corinthian church, to examine themselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. The apostle says this, Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Examine yourself. Test yourself. If Jesus is truly in you, it will be recognizable. Your belief will be demonstrated in your life. And that does not mean that you're not going to sin. We still have the old man, the sin nature that we have to battle. But are there marks of genuine belief, true fruit in your life? Paul is asking the believers in Corinth here to examine themselves. He doesn't say, remember the time that you prayed a prayer. That's not what he's telling them. He says, examine yourself, test yourselves. There are two plights facing the American church today. One is that many people in evangelical churches believe that they are saved when they are truly lost. And the other is that there are many believers who doubt their salvation because they live sinful lives that do not demonstrate their belief. If you go to many countries like China, Iran, believers there, true believers, aren't questioning their salvation. It's a very Western problem. And why is that? Because over there, if you believe, you're risking your life. It's very evident in your actions. Here, however, we have many people that truly believe, but then go off and live their life however they want, even when they are under conviction by the Holy Spirit, and then they wonder why they question their salvation. Remember, your works are a demonstration of your belief, of the belief that's in your heart. Your works don't determine your belief. If you are a true believer, 
You are secure in your salvation due to the effectual work of Christ upon the cross. His sacrifice is your assurance. You are saved not because of your belief, for that would mean that you boast in your works, in your own belief. No, you are saved due to the finished work of Christ upon the cross. It is finished, he declares. And that finished work allows us to live a life of genuine belief and faith. And that belief will be evidenced by the fruit in your life. And so I encourage you today to examine yourselves, as Paul says. Don't be like the Jews who believe externally, but then to whom Christ does not entrust himself because they lack true belief. So the first point in our text today is man's depravity, which is displayed by seeking signs and through false belief. Second, we're going to look at Christ's divinity, which is in verses 24 and 25. And there are two examples of this. First, we see Christ's divinity in his denial, in his denial, verse 24. Go back to John chapter 2, verse 24. John writes, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. Now the word entrusting here, epistusen, is the same Greek word translated as believed in verse 23. It's in a different tense, but it's the same word for belief. So a wooden literal translation of John 2.24 would read, Jesus on his part was not believing himself to them. This is John using word parallelism, parallelism here to contrast the false belief of the Jews versus the true belief of Christ. And it explains our main idea. Jesus did not believe in man's belief, demonstrating man's depravity and Christ's divinity. And Jesus did not believe again in their belief because their belief was not genuine. Faith and belief are the same word in Greek. To believe in something means to have faith in something. And the Jews' faith was earthly, fleshly, and corrupt was not given by the Lord. Their profession is merely external. Internally, their faith was not the result of the Holy Spirit enabling them to see with new eyes and a new heart. The great Puritan preacher, Thomas Watson, captures the necessity of the Holy Spirit enabling our belief. He declares in his book, The Godly Man's Picture, which was published all the way back in 1666, he says, quote, we may have excellent notions in divinity, but the Holy Spirit must enable us to know them after a spiritual manner. A man may see the figures upon a sundial, but he cannot tell how the day goes or what time it is unless the sun shines. We may read many truths in the Bible, but we cannot know them savingly till God's spirit does shine upon us, unquote. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7, verse 22 as an example of those who claim belief in the Lord, but whom the Lord rejects, who are false belief. John, or Matthew, pardon me, Matthew chapter 7, verses 22 through 23. And these should be familiar verses to many of us. John chapter 7, verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then, and I then will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is a picture of those who do not have saving faith in the gospel. False believers say, look at these signs. Look at the power that we had. Look at all the excellent things that we have done. Lord, let us in. And how does Jesus reply? I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. See, Jesus does not believe in the belief of these men who profess and say that he is Lord outwardly, but who do not have true belief. Their belief is not enabled by the Holy Spirit. It's a product of their sinful desire. They have not sought the Savior, merely the benefits that accompany association with Jesus, with the church, with Christianity. And in the same manner as Matthew 7, those in John 2, 24, follow their example and do not truly believe in Christ. And what does Jesus do? He does not entrust himself to them. This is a demonstration of Christ's divinity. Why does he not entrust himself to them? Well, this is grounded in the second example of his divinity, his knowledge. Let's look at the end of verse 24 and into verse 25 of John chapter 2. John chapter 2, the end of verse 24. It says, For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we see the reason that Jesus did not entrust himself to the Jews was because that he knew all men. Now, knowledge is another key word in this passage, and this word is a deep knowledge. It's one that understands and comprehends. In verse 24, it says, Christ knew all men. The all is plural. He's speaking generally. Christ knows all men. He knows their hearts. He knows the natural man is depraved and, sin and sinful. But Christ's knowledge extends even deeper than this. Look at verse 25. In verse 25, we are told that Christ does not need to t anyone to testify or tell him about what is in man. Why? Well, look at verse 25. It says that man here, he doesn't need anyone to testify concerning man. We've gone from men in verse 24 to man in verse 25. We've gone from broad to narrow. John has narrowed the scope to the individual. Man in verse 25 is singular. Jesus is now dealing with individual hearts. Jesus does not need anyone to tell him about man's heart condition. In other words, testify, martyrese, or martyr in, our, in the English language is a, another key word that we've seen throughout John chapter 1 and chapter 2. We're going to continue seeing it in John. John uh, tells us that Jesus did not need the testimony of men to, to understand and know the hearts of individuals. Why? Well, he himself knew what was in man. Jesus knew continually from eternity past what was in the heart of every individual. Now, you and I cannot see individual hearts. We can see people's actions, how people respond. We can see their fruit and their works and actions and fruit reflect a heart. Yet trying to view someone's heart is like trying to look through a dirty window. We can't look past all the dirt and grime. Only Jesus sees straight through and demonstrates his divinity. Only God looks at the heart. That's what the breath of scripture tells us. Think of 1 Samuel 16, 7. Samuel is trying to pick one of Jesse's sons to become king of Israel. And he comes up to the oldest one and he says, surely this man must be the next king. I mean, he's so tall and strong. He's certainly the right choice. But what does God tell Samuel? 1 Samuel 16, 7, God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. We're studying Proverbs in both faith builders and in youth Sunday school. And Proverbs 21, 2 teaches us the same principle. Quote, every man's way is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. You see, sinful man looks with sinful eyes at his sinful way and pronounces it right. But God looks deeper at the sinful heart 
and judges accordingly. Thomas Goodwin, the great congregationalist preacher, speaks to this issue. He says, until a man hath new eyes given to him from the holy word of God and be enlightened by a supernatural light accompanying it, which might represent men themselves to them and their condition, no wonder they think well of themselves, having but their own eyes, no wonder if their ways be clean in their own judgments and opinions. You see, man cannot look at the heart. Man demonstrates his creatureliness by judging himself according to man's standards. But God demonstrates his divinity by weighing the heart. And that's what Jesus is doing in John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. He is weighing the hearts of man. By knowing what was in man, without needing any external testimony, Christ is demonstrating his divinity. He knows what is in the heart of man. And it allows Christ to apply the only corrective to a sinful heart. And that is the gospel, the good news of Christ, that Christ has come to save sinners. We're going to see next week when Pastor Chris preaches in John chapter 3, that John is actually setting up the encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 2, verse 25. In John chapter 2, 25, we see that he knew what is in man, singular. If you go down to verse 1 of John chapter 3, we read, now there was a man singular of the Pharisees. So Jesus understands Nicodemus and knows Nicodemus's heart because he is divine. He can engage with Nicodemus and show Nicodemus that he needs the gospel, that he needs salvation, that his heart is impure because he knows all men. And our application today depends on your status as a Christian or a non-Christian. You see, Christ knows what is in you. He knows what is in your heart. Is this knowledge one of condemnation or love? If you are a believer, a true believer, Christ knows you intimately and lovingly. So my question for you today is this. Are you truly known by God? We often ask, do you know Christ? But perhaps the question should be, does Christ know you in a salvific sense? Many Jews believed in Jesus externally, yet Jesus did not entrust himself to them or believe in their belief. Those in Matthew 7, 22 thought they knew God. They called out, Lord, Lord. Yet Jesus says, I never knew you. So are you truly known by Christ? Second question, are you known by other believers? See, Christ doesn't need other testimony because he sees our hearts. However, we can only know each other externally through our fruits. And does your fruit demonstrate to others that you are a true believer? Does your manner of speech, your works, your dress, your attitude, all of this contributes to how we know each other. And if you attend Church of the Canyons, we would love to get to know you better and for you to get to know us better. So I encourage you, stay afterwards. Introduce yourself to someone that you don't know. Spend time talking about important subjects dear to your heart, your family, your life, your testimony. Let's get to know one each other, one each other better so that we can fellowship as true believers. We'd love to discuss the sermon with you afterwards. I'll be outside if you have questions or comments about what you've heard today. I'd love to talk with you afterwards and get into the text with you about what the Lord is talking about here. Jesus did not believe in man's belief, demonstrating man's depravity in Christ's divinity. I encourage you to reflect on the verses that we covered this morning. It's a tough sermon, a tough passage. But I hope that it encourages some to reflect 
John 2, 23 through 25, we saw the contrast, the belief of man and the belief of Christ. And hopefully this contrast will help you examine your belief to see if it's genuine and then encourage others to go to scripture and encourage others in their walk with Christ. Ask yourself, do I believe in Jesus? And then ask yourself, has Jesus entrusted the truth of the gospel to me? He knows what is in man. He knows what is in each one of you and in me. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we magnify your name. We admit our sinfulness. We understand that it is only the Holy Spirit that draws us to yourself. We know that you know what is in our hearts. And I ask you, Lord, if there's someone here this morning who's like the many false believers that we read about in our text, that they would believe in you truly, that you would open their eyes. You know their hearts, you know each one of us, and trust them with the gospel. And for the believers this morning, may they understand that you know them. May that encourage them to live a life that is glorifying to you. May it give them assurance of their belief and motivation to proclaim the gospel to all that, we, that they meet. We thank you for the blessing of your salvation, for the ability we have to fellowship with you as your children. We ask all these things in the name of your precious son.